This is the sound of Robert Plane soaring through the first movement of the Finzi Clarinet Concerto in a recording that won a gramophone award. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. It's an absolute delight to talk Finzi. I'm glad, and I'm looking forward to what I'm sure will be a unique insight from you as a performer into this work, into the emotional language of the piece, into your particular connection to it. And I have a million dollar question about the final movement, to which we will return. I'm just going to leave that rather teasingly hanging there. Um, Can I start by asking you what your current relationship is like to this piece? I I think this is a piece that has always lived with me and always will, to be honest. I mean, as many student clarinetists, I grew up learning the the bagatelles and, and you know, there's such a fantastic introduction to this this language and, and, and sound world. And uh, I mean, largely through my studies with, with Thea King, I just became immersed in, in this, this tradition, going back through Thurston and, and Draper to this magnificent uh, British clarinet uh, lineage in a way. So, uh, I mean, I just feel incredibly lucky that I have been able to be a part of that Um, and now in my new role as head of woodwind at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama uh, the most exciting thing is that I'm enthusiastically passing this on to the next generation of players so it's it's really satisfying to see see players are still turning to to this piece in particular and, and loving it the way I did you know 30 35 years ago. Oh that's gratifying to hear that it's very much in the core repertoire then of of study works. I absolutely think so. I mean, outside of the obvious uh, classical works, then for me, this is the, the go-to work of the, the 20th century. It, it defines everything there is about the clarinet, the, the lyricism, the uh, agility, and, and in particular, the, the, the melancholy. So just a phrase can, can just turn on, on one harmony. And I think that the clarinet is just uniquely suited as a wind instrument to, to to colour lines in, in the way that Finzi asks. Why do you think Finzi was drawn to writing for the clarinet in the first place? I think it's that ambiguity in the sound there's a warmth there's a a sort of comfort um, but you know the fact that we often play with no vibrato there's quite a a sort of direct edge to the sound as well and I think it can turn so easily it's just got an enormous range of colours of course enormous range of of dynamics and and also this amazing history of exponents of the instrument Um, so we go back to well two of the amazing uh, women pioneers of the clarinet, uh, Pauline Jeweller, who uh, the Bagatelles was, was written for and w- was due to play the concerto. Uh, and then my teacher in my university days, uh, Thea King. And of course, she famously recorded the, the Finzi concerto alongside the Stanford as her first disc for Hyperion, which, which unleashed, unleashed a, a huge uh, revival of interest in, in this area of the repertoire. And what particular insights did she give to you, Thea King, uh, when you were first learning this piece? Well, Thea was just the most amazing teacher. Um, 
I, I don't remember her ever playing the clarinet to me in a lesson really? for three years. And she, she just sat at the piano. She was an, you know fantastic pianist. Uh, and, and again, famously recorded for the BBC in uh, well ahead of her time. She um, recorded both parts of, of Brahms sonatas on, on piano and clarinet. So she was an incredibly accomplished uh, uh, pianist. And she just exuded musicality from, from her place at the keyboard. What that suggests to me is that right from the get-go, you had uh, a real feel for the harmony of the piece, and you alluded to that being so important for the melancholic language of the work, that how the harmony just goes from one chord into a new world, just it pivots on, on, on one chromatic side slip. I mean, I've always been fascinated by this relationship with, with the native music of the land that you, you, you grow up in, and... I'm convinced that there's just something so ancient about the, the modes and, and the harmonic language that has just always appealed to me incredibly directly. And I, I think this concerto above all, uh, really, is the, well, it's the epitome of, of, of that Englishness. Um, I, I mean, apart from Thea sort of having it, you know, in her bones, this language. Of course, she had the relationship with her teacher and then uh, future husband, uh, Frederick Thurston, who premiered the work at the Three Choirs Festival. Um, and I think the one moment I really remember that Thea came away from her seat at the piano was when she went over to her, her music shelves and she, she pulled down um, Thurston's own clarinet part of this piece, which he had, he had used to, to study the work. Uh, you know, with, with his markings. And, and I think wow. that was, I mean, I was still very young. I was 20, probably. And there was a real realisation that, um, you know, this tradition is so close. I was, I was working with a, a person that knew this person that, that premiered the Finzi. And, and, and I think that was a, a huge revelation to me at that time. How soon after that did you go on to make this recording with the Northern Symphonia and uh, Howard Griffiths? Well, we recorded that in 1995, and incredibly, the only time that I'd actually played this piece before then was at uh, Bristol University. So actually, while I was <laughs> having those very lessons with, with Thea, the, the, the aim was it was building up to, the, to this recording, uh, to this performance, sorry. And uh, it was a student-led uh, orchestra, in fact, conducted by Christopher Austin, who's, who's now a well-known uh, conductor and and orchestrator and uh, we we performed it together at Clifton Cathedral in you know acoustics which are, are dreamy for this this piece really um, so yes I, I had this opportunity to record a, a work which I'd love but I didn't have that uh, that background of, of performance experience and and looking back now as a as a 52 year old clarinetist you know the idea of recording this piece as a 26-year-old, it's, it's pretty scary, really. Um, obviously, the strings of the Northern Symphonia were you know, full of such virtuoso players. Um, that whole chamber orchestra ethos towards um, string orchestra works was just so ideally suited to this piece. Uh, we had the fantastic acoustic of All Saints Church in, in Newcastle overlooking the time. And it just seemed that all the conditions were right. I mean, I was just very lucky that Naxos were embarking on this really revolutionary 
time of recording British music and, and really fulfilling a, a huge desire to, to hear more in the listening public. Um, and I recorded it not because of, of who I was, but because I was principal clarinet in the Northern Sinfonia. So I always regard that as my incredibly lucky break that not only did I have a job that I, I loved, and it just gave me this huge chance to, to record a piece that I was passionate about. And, and then the success of which, you know, opened so many doors to, to record the other British discs I subsequently made. stayed with you throughout your career hasn't it this uh, love for British music I noticed your latest album in 2020 reawakenings has a, a beautiful assortment of composers from John Ireland through to Ruth Gipps and Hamilton and some names that I didn't recognize I'm ashamed to say but all stunningly beautiful yes I'm very proud of that collection I have to say I mean it was a real labor of love over many years of, of fundraising and, and contacting uh, composers' families and, and exploring the, the material available uh, in the estate. Um, but I'd, works like the Ian Hamilton, which had gone from winning a Royal Philharmonic Society prize to just never being played in, in 50 years. Uh, you know, a stunningly a beautiful pastoral concerto by Ruth Gipps uh, which had never had a, a professional premiere. It just, of course, there are works which are perhaps left unrevived, but with these particular works, it was absolutely the case that just one simple little thing, in the case of the Hamilton, uh, the, all the orchestral parts had been lost. Uh, in the case of the Richard Waltham right. concerto, he'd never got round to completing the orchestration. So th there were, they all felt like there was an injustice in, in the process and I was I was really happy to do my little bit to, to put that right. And in your championing of British clarinet music across your career have you noticed some traits that link the the writing of, of various British composers when it comes to the clarinet in particular? I think largely it's the inherent lyricism of, of the style which which suits the instrument and, and as I said before that that element of of melancholy but it's 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 the ability to to spin um, just long sensitive lines I, I think I mean the clarinet especially combines so well with with, with string orchestra there's a inherent blend and, and the you know the huge uh, breadth of the range of the instrument really matches the strings in all departments I think so you know, you can uh, muck in with the, the cellos and in, in the dark colours at the bottom, but equally you can, uh, you know, be celebratory at the top with the, with, with the first violins. So I think it's, it's a sort of really willing partner with, with the string orchestra in particular, uh, and indeed with, with the string quartet and all those great classics like the you know, Herbert Howell's quintet and the, the, the Bliss quintet, for example, as, as well as many others. A word that's often used to describe the compositional style of Finzi is rhapsodic. And I'd love for you to unpack that word and what it means for you, apart from the range 
that you were just describing because I want to come back to this notion of that white sound, the vibrato list, the, the restraint um, that is sometimes called for within the heat of that lyricism. And that seems to me to be uniquely British in a way. I mean, there's no better example than the slow movement of the, the Finzi Concerto. Of course, I mean, the, the opening, you know, painful purity of, of those violin lines that ha have so little to them, but speak, you know, speak volumes. Um, I, I see that movement as the, the ultimate in, in Rhapsody. There's a, a timelessness to it. I think that's the, the music has a pulse, it has a tempo, and yet at the same time it can stand still and, and flow. I think that's the thing. And, and yeah, I think that, that makes it hugely satisfying as, as a performer. And you feel like you just have, have control of time. And part of that timelessness and is presumably also to do with the mode in which a lot of it is held and that folkloric colour and a deliberate nod to the past. Yes, I mean, you can find yourself, you know, sitting on a harmony and having to, to colour it with your sound for, for, for quite a long time. Um, so, you know, the onus is on you really to, you know, to understand the, the, the shape and the implication of, of, of every chord of, of, of the progression. Just sticking with this middle movement, which seems to be, as is so often the case, the emotional core of the work, um, I'm thinking of the writing for the strings, where you have almost a, a thorn in the side of the harmonies, thanks to the, the violas in the opening paragraph. They're there just unsettling the consonants of the other strings. And there seems to be this edge that is being navigated throughout the movement between darkness and light. Is that something that you perceive as well? Totally. The, uh, whether when the music first settles on that, that glorious um, uh, major chord before the clarinet first enters, you know, we feel things are really settled, but immediately the clarinet line, you know, niggles with those just little dissonances, just sort of coaxing those little semitone um, inflections. So we've, we've kind of arrived somewhere, but, but everything feels in, insecure. And I, I think he's just such a master of timing in, in that respect, setting up expectations and then semi-delivering, but, but, but knowing we're going on to, to another world. You talk about those semitonal inflections and that's such an important recurring feature in this work, isn't it? Right from the opening clashes between E's and E flats and D's and D flats and the strings in the first movements, we have these either major sevenths or minor ninths or minor seconds throughout the melodic writing and harmonic writing of the piece. What is that expressing for you specifically? And I think the clarinet does have this, this role of trying to placate the strings in, in this piece. Uh, you know, much of the angst is, you know, condensed into the introductions of both the first movement and, and the, the finale. Um, so I, I do see the clarinet as a, as a kind of, um, yeah, coaxing force um, throughout this piece. But of course it's not immune to this and, and it's, it's, you know, absorbing those those tensions throughout. I mean, so many of the lines are, are full of open intervals. You 
know, something the clarinet does so beautifully. But it, it gives the music such a, a spaciousness, uh, I think. Um, but certainly whenever the strings are left alone, then, you know, the... the uh, well, just the, the angst that had been, you know, such a, a part of Finzi's personal life uh, just... Well, it just explodes to the, the surface, really. And then with every subsequent entry that uh, I'm trying to trying to resolve the, the, these tensions, I think. It makes me think of Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, the, the middle movement of that, of the pianist muted and taming the strings. Um, how aloof is the clarinet from the emotional language of the strings? Let's look at the first and second movements in particular. I mean, do you see there some kind of oppositional dialogue? You talked about the clarinet almost being infected by the angst that is happening harmonically there. But also, it seems to remain aloof and aloft in quite a lot of the phrases. Yeah, I think the, the, the melodic transformation of... You know, there's insistent octaves in the strings. You know, the octave then pervades the the first subject in the clarinet line. But then it's you know always a lyrical octave, and it's it's we're aware of the connections, but it's it's just taking those ideas into a different direction. I mean, the edge and the accents and, and the, just the general vigour of, of the introduction is something that, you know, the clarinet doesn't become so involved in in the first movement, interestingly enough, until the, the cadenza, uh, which, of course, was, was famously added at a later stage uh, at, at, in conjunction with uh, Thurston's view of the piece. You know, and there we do get these well, double octaves in this case, um, you know, accented octave figures. So I think it's only really after the all that reflection of the first movement that the sort of reality of this anger dawns in the in the clarinet part i'm glad to hear you say that because the cadenza for me is the most dissonant moment for the clarinet solo in in the first movement and arguably throughout the work um just the level of anger it seems or defiance perhaps uh, in that cadenza the freedom of it is striking yeah, and I think because the changes of mood are, are so quick, we get the one yum bum bum bum, and then immediately we're in a in a lyrical episode. Uh, yeah, then we build up to those those angst-ridden trills. I think it's very unsure of its its personality here, and I, in a way, I think that's why the the opening of the slow movement is is so poignant because he's 
kind of torn everything apart at the end of this first movement, I think. And we're in this this barren um, world where we don't have no idea what's happening. We get this this wispy violin line that that's you know take this so otherworldly. I think. I mean, standing there as a performer and and hearing that is just such a, a shivery moment. It's it's amazing. It almost feels as if it's rising out of a place of desolation after the first movement, that cadenza. I mean, just. I'd love to have your thoughts on the very final sentence of the first movement, which is repeating the octave figure, uh, but now in trills in the clarinet. Is it jubilant for you, or is it a kind of a forced jubilation in the context of that cadenza? I've never seen the end as as jubilant in any sense, and the the, the angst that's in in the bass line as the cellos and and, and double basses descend and sort of plumb the depths of, uh, of despair. There. So I, um, I very much feel I'm just, you know, part of the texture there. Um, it, they feel more like cries of, of pain, to be honest, I think, than any sense of, of, of having resolved anything at this stage. Does the second movement, despite starting in this ghostly place, offer redemption? Well, it's, it's incredibly luminous, isn't it? And, and and touching i i think it does i mean again it has the, the you know the the bursts of, of anxiety and and so many chromatic in, inflections again um but i think it's in the stillness just yeah time stands still in a way that's that's really unique i think it's certainly a concerto that i've i've played we, we get you know just gently oscillating harmonies just between two chords that the clarinet just spins this line that just feels it's so beautiful it could go on forever it's you know so confident in its beauty it doesn't doesn't need to do anything like to play it's it's really physically involving I think I, I, I feel very connected to it through my body um, but but in my mind there's a real light and there's a luminosity to it it's um, spiritual uh, it's I, I feel it touches every aspect of, of human emotion and so effortlessly I think it really sums up how it is to, to live and, and how a day goes from one emotion to another and you know we don't always get resolution but we get uh, a, a journey of, of some kind. And as you've deepened your own journey and extended your life experience how has that changed then your reading of the work? I'm sure I see much more darkness in it now than right. I probably did as a 26-year-old. Uh, I mean, it's hard to, to remember, I, I, I guess. Um, I think I've learnt a lot, you know, from recording, actually, uh, about, you know, how intense your convictions have to be to, to get the message across. And, and in a piece like this, the, you know, those contrasts need to be laid, laid out really clearly. Um, you know, obviously, um, you know the the the, the fact that Finzi uh, 
had such a well a relatively short life and and a life of so much sadness and and disappointment i'm i'm more in a position to understand that now than i was um, mm. 30 years ago so i think all those you know it's the life experience really that that enhances the the interpretation now i think rather than uh, you know any sort of progress as a clarinetist as such i think it's just much more of a, a deep um reaction than that you mentioned the volatility of the language before um and you just talked about contrast there and notice we've been studiously avoiding the question of the the final movement and this is my million dollar question that i teased at the opening so listeners if you've stayed with us this far and i hope you have then here we are finally my question it really is a very personal and subjective one which is i've never really got the finale emotionally i i wished it would carry on in the language with which it opens and yet it it seems to skip into a very pastoral mode um in a pat's way for me and I, i'm left high and dry help me out Rob. i'm so sorry to hear that and uh uh, we must get together and I'll, I'll try and convince you <laughs> yes, otherwise. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, the, the beauty and, and lyricism in the tune. I mean, I think there's a way to play it that's not um, overtly happy. And uh, I, I, for me, I don't see this as the start of the resolution as such, really. I mean, it's still... Yes, it settles in in a very pastoral tune, but, you know, it's still takes us to other other worlds quite soon i mean i perhaps in um defense of your argument you know the the introduction where again we go from the angst of the strings to this more settled world i mean it is quite short we only have what is it 11 bars to to work that angst out of the system <laughs> You say angst, and yet, curiously and paradoxically, it's marked Allegro Giocoso. What's that about? Yes. <laughs> There's not much obvious joy, is there? In, uh, I, not at that moment. I'm glad you agree, because it's, it's almost... Perhaps the Giocoso is for the clarinet to come, but I, I, for me, there's that sort of bitterness in, in those opening... Eleven bars that you were describing. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think it is. You know, it's certainly spirited and, and energetic, and, and all those kind of things uh, in a tense kind kind of way. Um, I mean, basically, we only have a molto writ to kind of take us into this sunny world. Um, I think because the clarin the, the the melody of the last movement is so incredibly suited to the clarinet. I mean, it's just everything the clarinet does, does well. Um, you know, the sound that the, the clarinet can make in, uh, in that melody is, is so special. Um, it's also incredibly... In what way? Well, it's, it's incredibly detailed in its marking. Uh, you know, diminuendo first note to, to third, uh, marble and little inflections, uh, you know, covering a, a, a wide range of the instrument. I, I think... There's something very uh, 
homely about it, but I don't find it kitsch or embarrassing in any way. I think by this stage, you know, the comfort is really craved in this piece. Mm. And I think, if anything, for me, that's that's how it works. That we've, you know, we've had this torrid first movement. We've had this, you know, huge scale slow movement, which has shown us some hope, um, but you know, often often dashing it. Um, but again, the end of the slow movement is so luminous that I just feel we're we're craving so much. Uh, comfort here that to me it feels quite as a relief I have to say um, so maybe that's a way of, of looking at that it, it's uh, you know it's just, just fulfilling a need that, that we may have by that stage a required emotional payoff that serenity <laughs> there there are those moments of recollection of the first movement towards the end of the finale as well which uh, which help restore a sense of integrity for me you know both formally but also emotionally yeah I think that's where the real resolution is isn't it of, of, of the piece um we, we get the opening themes but they're in, in a different in, inflection they're they're more more weary actually i think perhaps that's more the case than than a resolution it's it's an acceptance of, of where the piece has gone and it just you know of course we get the the the, the dazzling uh, final coda um but I think, yeah, we've, it feels like we've been working up to that, that return of the first theme. And, and as, as soon as it starts, it, everything makes sense. completely with you on that and and one can completely understand as you say the final flourish uh, to round off what has been such a sort of a, an emotionally charged concerto I have two remaining questions for you Rob um, the first one is around the performance context of this so it was first performed in the three choirs festival in Hereford um, and you can imagine it being I suppose instinctively understood there in that context I was wondering how it translates then uh, internationally, how it's received internationally. My experience of playing the Finzi Concerto overseas is, is relatively limited, but I did have the huge pleasure of playing it with Howard Griffiths, who I'd recorded it with, with the Symphonia, uh, in Zurich at the Tonhalle with his Zurich Chamber Orchestra. And I just remember the, the, the weight on my shoulders and the responsibility I felt that, that this music, which I've... Uh, tried to champion to my best of my ability for such a long time to suddenly be thrust into another arena and to you know make a convincing case uh, to an audience that probably wasn't immersed in that language and uh, awareness of the, the British pastoral tradition um, and, but I think the, the, the immediacy of the music just plays out to, to any audience I, I feel and I've increasingly come across um, students overseas, uh, particularly in the States actually, and, and in China, students that have been, been learning it, where I think the appeal of, of the music is, is so immediate in its language and in the success with which he writes for the instrument. I, my final question is, 
and we've been having, I suppose, a bit of a Desert Island Discs theme in recent podcasts. So it's related to that. Rob, would you take the Finzi Clarinet Concerto with you on your Desert Island? It would be well up there, I would say. I mean, I... Excellent. T- just before we had our chat, I was, I was just listening to, to a performance, not, not my own, I hasten to add. Um, and just, the, you know, the shivers as, as always there for me. I, I, I hear the introduction and, and I'm just on, I don't know, it just tr- transforms me to, to another place. So I think, I think the, the importance of this piece in my life the fact that I had this chance to record it and that it then opened up the chance to record so many of these, these British pieces that, that I love and, and really changed the course of my, my playing career. So if for no other reason, it, uh, you know, it has that sort of sentimental uh, attachment to me. Um, but in a way, harking back to your question about the third movement, you know, it would be impossible not to listen to that third movement on this desert island and, and not have those loving feelings of home and, and family and, and upbringing and uh, and all those things that I think would uh, be of, of, of sole importance uh, when when they're taken away. Well in that case Rob let's leave you there on the desert island with dreams of home courtesy of the finale. Thank you so much. <laughs>